on October 4th, 2017, um, that all changed. They were pushed out on a mission they shouldn't have been on um, with with a complete lack of assets. Honestly, they had nothing. They had no backup, no quick reaction force, nothing. And so I didn't know any of this at the time. All I know is that night I get a call from my mother-in-law that there was a news flash across uh, her phone stating that a uh, Green Beret team in Niger up near the Niger-Mali border had been ambushed and that um, some Green Berets had been killed and others injured. And that's all she knew. And I knew instantly that that was Brian. And I told her, I said, that's Brian's team. Um, Brian's dead. And I received a knock at the door two hours later. day to flex your freedom. I'm your host, Barb Allen. I am um, really looking forward to sitting down today with today's guest. You all know my story. And if you didn't pop back to last week's episode, because I gave you a recap, um, you know, it is, it's losing somebody you love is always a terrible, traumatic, painful experience. I don't know anybody who hasn't lost somebody they love in life. So right there, I know every single one of you listening can connect to that on some level. In the smaller minority of groups, fortunately it's a minority, but it is still being a minority, it's way too big a number because there is no accounting for man's free will or the evil that does exist in the world. So some of us who lose people we love, lose it to violence of others, to homicide, to assaults, to attack. And that was my case. And I know the compounded grief. I know what it's like to hear that not only did the person you love with every fiber of your being suffer a terrible, painful, sudden, unexpected death, right? But he did so at the hands of somebody who willfully took his life. In my case, it was an American soldier. And I know what it is like to be thrust into a criminal justice system to not know what the heck is going on. And then on top of that, if you've been in the criminal justice system at all, um, you know how overwhelming and additionally traumatic it can be, right? But I was a civilian, a National Guard wife, um, not really in the military world, but also in the military world. So I'm already in this in-between land and then I'm thrown into the military criminal justice system. So it's two foreign worlds to me. And it was just this hodgepodge years of just trauma and confusion and betrayal and whirlwind. And again, I'll say fortunately, because within that military world of the Gold Star Wives, I am also a minority, right? Very few people go through my experience. Um, I, you know, you all know my friend Taya Kyle, her husband was not killed in the military, but she, he was murdered. So that's as close as I can get my mentor, Terry Seifert, her husband, um, Chris was killed by Hassan Akbar, not that long, about two years before my husband was, Lou was killed and she mentored me through the criminal justice. So there are other people out there, but you have to kind of look for them, right? And so it can be really isolating when this happens to you. On top of the grief, on top of the trauma, you can just feel cut off and severed from the rest of the world, from all the people you know. You're a widow, but your story is different. And so within the military, uh, people like don't really know how to deal with you because your husband didn't die this quote acceptable um, politically correct death. Right. Um, and that doesn't always happen at the hands of a fellow soldier. Sometimes it happens on missions that the American people really don't know are even happening in the first place. We don't understand why you're there. They're in countries that most of us never think of, can't even put on a map, don't know how to pronounce. And so when you take all of these items in and tick them together, put one on top of the other, on top of the other, on top of the other, the totality of that can just make grief, the sudden loss of your husband in this case, so much more overwhelming to deal with, especially when you have children that you are trying to lead through their grief, children who have just lost their father. And then you throw in the added 
carnage of the military putting a spin on your husband's death that is just unconscionable, unpalatable, and makes you even more of sort of an outcast in this military community. Because when you stand up to speak about it, um, you're people look at you and they brand you as something that you're not. And so I'm explaining all these things, putting those out there to try to just like layer on top of layer on top of layer on top of layer to give you a little bit of context about the enormity of what today's guest has been up against. And she's going to go into that here herself in a minute. Um, I am so happy to have had the opportunity to meet to meet Michelle, uh, Michelle Black, who we're going to get to her here in a minute and to get to know her a little bit. I got to know her through an event, through a network that we've built. And so this is the point in the time where I have to pause for a second right before we dig into all this and just thank all the people who have supported us and made this possible without the support of our sponsors and our community. I could not be going to events like this. I cannot build our network. I cannot bring you these stories here. So let me get to a couple of sponsors here through the show. Patriot Mobile. Uh, Patriot Mobile um, they are one of the sponsors that came out to support our Great American Summit. We could not have done it without any of our sponsors. You can find out about them at patriotmobile.com. They are America's only Christian conservative wireless service provider. They offer a broad range of coverage and dependable nationwide 4G or 5G LTE networks. They provide their members dependable wireless service and exceptional support while relentlessly fighting for our shared values. So they donate portions of their proceeds to organizations that fight for our First Amendment religious freedoms and freedom of speech, Second Amendment rights to bear arms, sanctity of life, and the needs of our veterans and first responders, which is what attracted them to helping us as well. So we thank Patriot Mobile um, as one of our sponsors and for helping us be able to do what we do, in particular, our Great American Summit, where we hope to have Michelle there with us in some capacity next week, next year. Um, so now that I've gone through all that, Michelle, thanks for writing that out with me. Um, and thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you so much for having me on. I am, <clears throat> I'm really excited to be here. So, yeah, you know, I do know how it can feel like you're in this world, but then you're like, where, who else has gone through all of this right now? In your instance, you have the other family members and I want to get to that and find out more about that as well first, but take us through a little bit here. I alluded to some of it without giving the details <clears throat> of all of it, but talk about um, what happened in October, 2017, that sort of ended life as you knew it and brought you down this path where you are today. Yeah. So my husband, Brian was a green beret medic and he was operating in Niger, Africa. He'd been there um, a couple of times and their mission set was literally just to train the Nigerian troops so they could um, they could combat the growing threat of terrorism on their borders. So my husband's team generally weren't doing missions that were uh, it wasn't a combat zone. So they weren't doing risky missions. But on October 4th, 2017, um, that all changed. They were pushed out on a mission they shouldn't have be, been on. Um, with ass, with a complete lack of assets. Honestly, they had nothing. They had no backup, no quick reaction force, nothing. And so I didn't know any of this at the time. All I know is that night I get a call from my mother-in-law that there was a news flash across uh, her phone stating that a uh, Green Beret team in Niger up near the Niger-Mali border had been ambushed and that um, some Green Berets had been killed and others injured, and that's all she knew. And I knew instantly that that was Brian. And I told her, I said, that's Brian's team, um, Brian's dead. And I received a knock at the door two hours later. And that just, uh, it, it exploded all over the media before it even, uh, before we even were told what happened. Uh, yeah, so. which is crazy that that can still happen now, because I know they go into like a real big lockdown on communications when something like that happens. Um, so do you know how that even even happened? Well, <clears throat> that area, I know for sure there were a lot of um, there were because there was an American that had been kidnapped in the region. Um, within that past year, there were media um, working in Niger. And so I don't know if it was that 
or um, they had just finished uh, recording an episode of um, Chain of Command on my husband's team. So maybe there was a connection there. I don't know. But somehow media knew because they were they were close by when it happened. And as it goes with media, it's 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 not a matter of ethics anymore. It's a matter of who can report it first, not yeah. whether it's accurate, not whether it's uh, right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but um, it, it's about, you know, the first, first person to get it out wins. So uh, that means we, as military families, we all lose. So. Yeah. And I remember hearing about this, but what I remember specifically is that there was footage of this out there. And I remember all the news coverage showing replays, not necessarily from the body cam that came out, but um, the like kind of satellite views where they pinpointed where this person was and where that person was. And I remember thinking and saying like, this is horrible for the families. You know, I just, like, why are they doing this? I just remember just feeling, I didn't know you. I'd never met you. I didn't know like who you were as a person, but I, I knew you in some sense in that I was like, this is just not okay that they're doing this. But I know really very few other people kind of like get that. Right. Um, so talk about what that is like there for you. Now you've just got this knock at the door, right? Everything that you know and love has come to a sudden cataclysmic end there. And you're just in the shock, you're in this panic and right. All these things colliding in you, but then it's out there. Now you have the Mm -hmm. whole world seeing this. What is that like um, to, to walk through as a wife who just lost her husband. And as a mother, how old were your kids at the time? So my boys were nine and 11 and my 11 year old is autistic or what, you know, he was 11 at the time. He's 16 now. But, um, so I was dealing with that. So even just telling them, I mean, my autistic son, I think it kind of surprised me because a lot of times as military, when we first, when we hear about people being killed, we think combat. And he was the first one to actually say, so my dad was murdered. And um, that just, that, that really shook me. Um, but yeah, so we instantly uh, were overwhelmed with media, just um, especially since it was uh, the first turn, uh, the first, gosh, probably, I think, um, Trump had just come into office that following year. So it was really his first year. And so the media was really pushing hard to destroy him. Just anything, you know, everything gets politicized. So the media at that time was really gunning for him. And so we had media everywhere wanting us, you know, to basically say anything we could against him or, you know, that this was his fault. And at that time, I just thought, I, I don't know. I don't care. Um, my <laughs> husband's on a 10 man team in nowhere, Africa. I doubt Trump made a call um, or was aware that they were ambushed. Um, but, you know, at that point, you don't care. You're, you're in the middle of dealing with my husband's dad. Um, my future has been completely blown up. And now I've got two kids who you know, I have to break this news to, and, and the media is busy putting, you know, a microphone in your face. And I, I don't know what you were supposed to do with that. I've always been a pretty private person. So to suddenly have that, that just influx of all these people trying to track us down, get our opinion when I had no opinion, all I had was grief. Um, and they're standing outside as my children are pallbearers at the uh, memorial service, you know, it's just, it was mind blowing to me. And then on top of it, you know, the president called in all the families and then it was, well, what, what did that phone call sound like? And I just thought, this is none of your business. This is my business. So um, it it just, it, it, the whole thing was overwhelming. And yeah, then there was the video. So they instantly opened an investigation into the incident Then there was this blow up over the phone calls with President Trump because one of the um, widows and him got into a a disagreement and um, 
there was kind of a Twitter feud and, and whatever. And so, which was just totally unnecessary. Um, as a widow, you know, I, I just thought, I don't care what happened between them. If her feelings are hurt, let it go. You're the president of the United States. You have the whole world. She just lost her whole, whole world. Whether she's in misinterpreting what you said or she's not, isn't relevant. You know, like she's torn apart. Say sorry. Let's move on. Um, but instead, you know, again, media frenzy blew up over that. So it's like there was no peace just to have the, the memorials for Brian and these guys and lay them to rest. It just was a nightmare. Um, and then, of course, that was all that was October and December, um, October, November, December. And then January, we get a call stating that there is a video out there and it has um, the deaths of my husband and Jeremiah and Dustin, three of the four men killed. Um, but the military was working on suppressing it um, and keeping it out of the press. Uh, and then I want to say a month and a half, two months later, um, that was released by CBS News and SoftRep on the same day as though they Did were. Did they call you first? Oh, no, no. <sighs> it just released on a Sunday night. And so, so no warning, no warning. You don't get a phone call. The networks don't call you. They don't no say, hey, we have this me. footage. We're going to. They just they drop, drop it. it. And oh. I, my guess is that they both realized that each other had it and it was a race to see who could get it out first. So it dropped late at night on a Sunday night. I dropped my kids off at school on a Monday. Oh, my God. And you can imagine it's all over YouTube and kids at school. And my son, I had to go pick him up. My autistic son and scratch the word Niger into a computer screen. And uh, so it, it was in, and, you know, the VA can't fit us in for a, uh, a mental health check. So we basically just went home and checked out for a while. Oh my uh, gosh. That's, that is, I, I have just, you know, just chills thinking about that because I think, and I want people to stop here, pause for a second, are especially the parents out there, right? Imagine your child, going through like your instinct is to protect your child and they're already going through this. And then they have that just dropped on them. I remember when stories would come out about my husband, I wouldn't necessarily know about it. The trial was like front page news for a little while. And one day one of my kids came home from school and he was like, mom, how come you didn't tell me dad was going to be on the front page again? You know, because the kids in his class were like, Oh, Travis, I saw your dad. And he was, came home angry at me because I didn't tell him because I didn't know. Right. And so yeah. that's the, that is just the, the after like the unforeseen ripple effect. Did you look at any of these stories? Did you look at these videos? Did you see, did you even notice comments that people were making on these stories? You know, these stories come up and everybody jumps in and you get this whole range of comments I yeah. made the mistake of reading them. Did you? I, I purposely read them because I wanted to, I guess I felt like it would build up my uh, strength and tolerance, which I know is crazy, no, but no, I just no. thought if I can read this, then if someone approaches me on the street, I can handle it. If they're going to tell me this on the street, because just the stuff we were dealing with, I mean, even just judgments from people within our school who just made assumptions based upon what they were reading in the media, including the administration. And um, I eventually had to pull my kids out of that school because it was so bad and unsupportive. Wow. Um, yeah. And so when uh, when all of those comments came out, I began reading them. Um, and I did do one interview eventually. Um, and I, I like to go through and read because it, it was interesting when uh, people would watch my interview and then they would come on and say things like, I've been following the story closely. She doesn't know what she's talking about. And I think just being able to laugh at that, I thought, okay. You know, this this at least gets me laughing and I can take some of this in stride because this is an absolute hell. And if I can laugh at some of it, um, I'm going to be OK. So um, that that helped uh, oddly enough. But, yeah, I thought this this is funny if people honestly it tells you 
the the craziness of the average commenter. Because if someone's going to come on come on and comment on things like this, they're right. not totally sane. Generally speaking, there are some great people <laughs> who come on and say, you know, oh, you know, good on her or whatever. And I was like, you know, and I'd be like, okay, those are the, those are the people I'm here for, and I love reading their comments. Right. Um. And the people who are writing the crazy stuff, I can just laugh it off, or I can come up in my mind with the logical reasoning behind why they are wrong. And that way, if I do run into a person who says this to me, I already am prepared, which I know it doesn't make sense. My father-in-law was like, don't do that. And I can't anymore. Now I do get worked up. But back then it was just, I think it was probably shock being in shock and dealing with so much. It was like, um, okay, I just watched my husband die on national TV. So your comment is extremely laughable in comparison. So yeah. like, yeah, he should have just, you know, punched the gas. I'm like, right. Like while the bullet was in his head or oh like, like, you know, just yeah. crazy stuff. So, yeah, that is, uh, well, I'm sorry you all had to deal with that. What is it like then, you know, cause that wasn't the beginning and the end of things for you in terms of losing your husband and in the way you lost him. You didn't get to bury your husband and have these memorials and a street put named after him or something, and then go about your healing and attempt to rebuild your life, knowing that your husband's legacy is secure at least, right? But that's mm-hmm. not how it went for you. What happened after all of this, after the footage came out um so simultaneously this as the footage and and all this other craziness is happening you know the news is doing what it does and and um, following the investigation and of course the investigation um is leaking to the media um and so i begin to hear that uh people anonymous sources within the investigation are stating that um, the team acted inappropriately, that they were a bunch of cowboys, that they had gone rogue, um, hunting after a terrorist and anyone who knows Green Berets. Um, and, you know, me knowing my husband as well as I did, there, there was no way that this was true. You know, they with the amount of training they go through, not to mention the, you know, the fact that Green Berets, you know, they they undergo all, all these like psychological evaluations. All they, they're some of the most steady and thoughtful people there are and logical. So to go rogue, to hunt down a terrorist with no backup and no support is not something they would ever do. Um, there's no reason to take that kind of risk. And that's that's not what they do. But in the media and to the general public, it's like, oh, yeah, soldiers, you know, a bunch of cowboys makes sense. Right. Um, It's what we see in the movies. But um, in reality, I mean, you know, this this isn't a Jack Hart novel. Right. (laughs) Nobody's going rogue. So um, that that was interesting to begin to hear that. And I thought, okay, this is not what investigators are finding. Some anonymous source is probably just some, you know, somebody wanting to talk to the press who hasn't gotten, you know, I don't know, is maybe making notes for this investigation, isn't an officer or whatever. Um, So I figured we would just wait. And my father-in-law, having been a Marine, convinced me the same thing, like, hey, listen, this is just media trying to get the first thing out there the fastest. And they don't even know the difference in uh, the difference between a red beret and a green beret, because that was a constant conversation, you know, on, on media, because some of the guys were support who were killed and some were green berets. And so they were trying to figure out what the specialty of the red beret was. And so it was just, he's like, if they can't, if they can't figure out the difference between a red and a green beret, then surely they're not reporting on this correctly the way the investigation is. So when the investigation comes out, I'm sure we will find the truth. And so we waited and and he and I talked um, as time went on and and learned more. There there were three con ops. Turns out the guys had left um, originally on, I believe it was the third, the morning of the third early and had a one-day mission that they had written a con-op for, which is a concept of operations report detailing what they're supposed to do um, to make sure that those higher up the chain give approval and then they get all what 
you know, all of the assets they need for that mission. And so they had written a con out, gone on this one day mission, completed it successfully on the third, we're headed home. And we found out that there were two more con ops written and that they were not written by the captain of the team, but that the team had gotten turned around while they were still out and people higher up the chain had written the next con ops and pushed the team ahead. So as we headed into our briefing, which um, our, the investigation wrapped up in uh, the end of May, beginning of April. So we headed into our brief mid, uh, mid-April. So we were like, okay, we want to figure out who wrote the different con ops, um, who actually, you know, ordered the second part of the mission and, you know, what that all entailed because the second part of the mission is when they were ambushed. And what we found when we got into the, the briefing room was that they refused to discuss the, the last two comments at all. Um, and I was shocked when they began to say, this is the team captain, Captain Parazzini, who is at fault. And what was one thing I do want to back up on is in the media, they had already released names of uh, operating uh, Green Berets and um, pictures of them from the team and had already started um, pegging and going after Captain Parazzini and saying that he was at fault and that the whole team followed him on a rogue mission that he he basically um, tricked them or convinced them to do. Yeah, and that it got them killed. And so what was interesting is going in and having AFRICOM, um, the, the investigating officer actually tell us that. And I thought that to me was so far-fetched because to have the first concept of operations written by the team captain, who is the lowest of the officers, right? He's the highest on the team, but he's the lowest of the officers. And somehow that's what led to four American deaths and this ambush, you know, a day and a half later, um, two con ops later, um, that made zero sense. And so I began to ask them, I said, well, they, you know, they went down and did this mission and he wrote the con up for that. And they said, yes. And I said, but that was completed successfully. So what about the next two con ops? And they were like, well, Mrs. Black, those had to be written by somebody else. And I said, okay, well, who wrote those? Well, you know, we're not at liberty to say. And I'm like, okay, well, did those have all the proper proper approvals and whatever? Yes, they did. And I was like, well, then they still didn't have proper assets and they were still severely lacking assets when they you know, were ambushed. So you're, t- and it was like, well, yeah, but they had proper approvals. Those con ops did. And I was like, right. But who were, who were you talking to when you did this and how did you get in to meet them? So like, was what, it all the family members asking these questions? Was it? No. So what they did is they, they individually briefed the family groupings. So I, I got briefed with my in-laws on Brian. So it's like Brian had a, um, okay. a, a briefing and then I'm assuming each other family, I think some of the families got split up depending on, you know, their, their relationships. I don't really know, but I do know that my family just got one lump briefing. And so we went in and so it was me and, and my family being briefed. And there were a few times, um, a few specific questions and I go into great detail in my book on exactly mm-hmm. what was said throughout it. But there was one and point. And your book, by the way, is behind you, Sacrifice. Oh, yeah, good. It's right there and it has a new cover as well. But yeah, um, so I go into extreme detail, just laying exact, laying out exactly what happened. And I had my CAO with me there, my casualty assistance officer, my father-in-law and my mother-in-law. So we kind of went through and just um, put together all the pieces of what happened in there. Cause it was, it was crazy. Um, there was one point when I, uh, my father-in-law asked a question and there was a JAG lawyer sitting behind him and my mother-in-law, so no one else could see him, but me. And I saw him stand up and shake his head for an answer for the investigating officer to answer. Like don't and, answer that. Yeah. Well, yeah. he, he shook his head as in my father-in-law asked, you know, had you run a second threat assessment for sending them alone to the Mali border? Because originally there was a Helleborn unit um, that was supposed to go with them. And they had gotten turned around due to weather. And so my husband's team had asked to return to base. 
And we were told that, no, they did not request to return to base, that they just preferred not to go. But, you know, they they were OK with it as, you know, right. it, it was it, it was like word smithing to make it sound right. And it became yeah. very pretty clear. And then my father-in-law said, well, did you run a second threat assessment? And the investigating officer, General Cloutier, he stalled. And that's when the JAG lawyer stood up and shook his head yes, and then sat back down. And then General Cloutier stalled still. And so then the JAG lawyer said yes. And it was just like mind blowing. And I was like, okay, either they don't actually know the answer or they are choosing to lie or to us. Or they're lying to us. And talk about then what it is like. And again, I'm going to encourage people who want to know more about this uh, to get Michelle's book. It is titled Sacrifice. It is out there. MichelleBlack.com, right? Is your website. And you uh, MichelleBlackSacrifice.com. MichelleBlackSacrifice.com. And, um, you know, Google it and you'll find out more. But, but definitely get that, pick up that book if you want to know more about it. But I want to talk then what it is like. Um, so you're going through all this, you, you've lost your husband, you're trying to lead your two boys through this. You have a whirlwind of chaos happening around you. You have the media pointing out or accusing your husband and the men that died with him of going rogue, basically blaming them for their own deaths. And not only that, but like sort of treating them like a black mark on the special forces themselves, as if there's something to be ashamed of, which I know also is extremely just like acid on a wound. Right. And yeah. then, so now you're, you're faced with the decision. How far do you take this? What is, what is it worth to you to sort of clear the record and clear your husband's name, all that, you know, what is the cost benefit analysis? Why are you, why are you going to do that? And what, what are some of those costs in terms of people branding you anti-military maybe, or people saying, oh, she's crazy. Why doesn't she let it go? She doesn't know what she's talking about. She's just an angry widow. Um, the toll it would take on you personally to have to dig into all of these records and put this all together in a book and do these interviews and do that reaching out you did, the time away from your children. I mean, all, all of that comes into play and you're now faced with these decisions like to how far am I going to chase this, right? Um, so what were some of the biggest moments for you where you were like, or did you even have any where you said, you know, maybe I should just let this go. Um, maybe it's too hard. Did you have any of those moments? Do you have them now? Um, I did initially. So as we left the investigation, that, that was kind of my thought is, is, is this worth pursuing? Um, are they really lying to me or is that just my interpretation? And surely they're not going to completely dishonor the team. This was just our briefing, right? And, and they're not going to punish these guys on the team, like, like the captain. And, um, and uh, just there, there were several other guys, uh, Brent Bartels. So there were multiple people on the team that I'd known um, through my, you know, just because the way teams are, they're very close. And I knew that these guys couldn't possibly be guilty of, of what we were being told. There's just no way. So I thought as long as, you know, they're not punished, then is this worth pursuing? And I thought, not really, because it'll, it'll just all pass away, fall to the side, and then we can just move forward and start to heal. And so I kind of decided that, you know, I do have these questions and maybe, um, the guys that have been under gag orders, I thought once the gag orders drop, I'll ask them about these things and, and get these questions answered. Um, but it's not worth making a scene, right? And fighting over and uh, just, yeah, being accused of being crazy. And uh, yeah, all the things that it has cost me at this point. Um, you know, people assuming that I'm anti-military, which I'm not. Right. Um, I'm anti-military individuals having enough power to lie to you. But um, I actually love the military and encourage my kids to join if that's what they want to do. But um Unfortunately, if you speak out, that's that's exactly what they try to do is label you um, 
or what people do, I should say. It's not a big they, but it's what people generally do. Right. They assume you're anti-military. But um, what ended up happening was, I believe it was two weeks after our family brief, there was a media brief by um, all of AFRICOM. And so the general, the four-star general running or commanding um, AFRICOM at the time, General Waldhauser, he began to take questions and speak to what they were going to do moving forward. And he did make it clear that they would be punishing team members, um, that they would be punishing team captain Perizzini. He completely slandered him during the media brief. And then what really got me was a reporter asked, so are they a bunch of cowboys going rogue? And the um, general's response was that while all teams on the continent were performing optimally, my husband's team was not indicative of what special operators do. So my husband was a model Green Beret. Um, he was the epitome of what a Green Beret would be until the day he died with a Green Beret on his head. And then suddenly he was being dishonored and completely lambasted by this um, by this commander who was basically just trying to pass blame because he knew that his his you know his whole command had screwed up by not giving them proper assets to do a uh, a mission that they had said they didn't have proper assets to do and so i i just i lost it at that point i was like this is not fair he's he's completely um just denigrated all the my husband and all the men who fought and died alongside him. And I think something in me snapped at that point. And that day I was like, I, I set a timeline and I said exactly two years from, and it, it took me a little bit to come up with my plan, but I decided I was going to write a book. I was going to detail exactly what happened on the ground so that it would fly in the face of what they were saying because I knew what they were saying was a lie. And I decided that Brian died in 2017, October 2017. So I gave myself exactly two years from that date to get a publisher. And um, so I went and I asked the guys on the team. I said, this is not right. And I want to do this. Will you, um, will you speak with me? And at first they said no, because they didn't want to involve me. And at that point I was like, I'm already pretty involved. involved. Today Brian <laughs> died, you know, yeah. I'm involved. And they were like, well, we don't want that to fly, you know, to, to come back on you. And I was like, well, what are they going to do? You know, right. kill my husband, right. show his death on TV to my kids, lie to me. Like it's, there's nothing worse that you can do at this point. I have nothing right. to lose, which is a scary place to be. And it's a scary thing when you've lied to a woman who has lost everything because that's there is no <laughs> there is no stopping at that point right because now she's already been through the worst that can do so whatever you're going to do to her no longer scares her um like yeah. it doesn't like they have no power to stop you using fear or the, not even like fear is in like, we're going to come burn your house down, but fear is in, this is going to exhaust you. This is going to deplete you. This is going to drain you. You're like, oh, yeah. yeah. And you know, <laughs> yeah. um, like that's where I operate now, bitches. So like, yeah. You know, like, yeah. And, and, yeah. And, and everybody underestimates you and doesn't take you right. seriously. So you're right. in the perfect position. Honestly, I remember right. sitting at a Memorial day luncheon and turning to the commanding general of USASOC at the time and just saying, I'm going to do my own investigation and write a book and detail exactly what happened on the ground. And he just looked at me like, that's nice, dear. And I was like, okay. <laughs> I was like, just, just making you aware since you were the commanding general at the time. <laughs> so what's been the, what's, <laughs> sorry, I keep coughing. I'm covering. Um, what has been the response from your book? Um, it's been, it, it's funny because it hasn't gotten a ton of visibility, but yeah. the people who have read it, are like, I have never read a book cover to cover in one sitting, but I have with yours. And the other thing that I get overwhelmingly is this should be a movie. And surprisingly, because of the, the cover here, a lot of men won't pick it up, um, which is why I changed it for the paperback. But what, there's, what I get when they do pick it up is just 
they're blown away. They're like, this is the best after action report. When we read through the, the scenes of what happened on the ground, it is mind blowing uh, mm-hmm. how detailed it is. They're surprised I've never been in combat. But um, the other thing is just, it's hard for some guys to read who have been in combat because I also go through what the aftermath um, for us looked like. And they've, a lot of these guys have faced that, or they've had to, they've had to face the families after a friend was killed. And so for them, it's, it's like reliving that, but also seeing it from our side, which a lot of them, it's really hard for them to sit down and see that. And I know when I was interviewing the men for this, um, that was, I think a huge thing that made it hard for them was coming and sitting down with me with the kids in the other room and us going through it because there were so many, I mean, hard feelings that you don't want to feel coming out. So, you know, I'm breaking down, they're breaking down, but we're trying to, you know, get to the bottom, get to the truth of it. And um, I think because of that, we came out better people for it because we did sit down and have those hard conversations and walk through the whole thing. But um, when now, when, men who've been through combat, especially on teams, read this and, and have lost a lot of guys. They they just relate to it so um so much. So it's it's I know the first part of the book is is really difficult for them, but they, you know, they do enjoy the um the on the ground and as well as when I at the end I, I take apart the redacted report that was given to us by AFRICOM um following the investigation. And um I pull it apart and basically this is what actually happened. This is what they said. This is a mm-hmm. lie, you know, and, and this is who is actually responsible. And this is their name, which I also got really? a lot of flack for, which is why did you release officers' names? And I, you know, my response is always, why did officers release the name of active duty Green Berets who did nothing wrong? Yeah. Touche, touche there, right? Man, Michelle, your story is so crazy, not just like as an outsider listening to it as an American citizen, hearing about what happens to our troops, but also it's like, you have so many parallels with my story in so many different ways. It's like really just getting to me. Um, you know, like so many things that you're saying are ringing true for my story as well, which I, to me is just more evidence and like another opportunity for me to go out there and point out to people listening. And this is not specifically related to us, but it is in that. I, I don't know if you have people coming up to you, Michelle, I do. And they say, Oh, you know, you, that's crazy what you went through and how you found your way through it. My situation is so, so unique that I could never find anybody to teach me. There's no mentors. There's no support group. There's nobody who understands what I'm going through, but here you and I are sitting. And again, I feel like that is just more evidence that no matter how bizarre your situation may feel, no matter how alone you may be, there is absolutely somebody out there who, if even if they haven't experienced the same exact thing, because nobody experiences the same two things, there's somebody who has experienced something extraordinarily similar to you, who has gone through experiences that you can pull from and learn to learn from as well. So I, whatever, whoever is listening now, if you're in the situation feeling like there's literally nobody on the earth who could understand me, hello, you're just watching two random people who just met at an event who have such bizarre stories that just overlap in so many ways. So take that. If you take nothing else from this interview, which I hope you take a lot more, including going out to buy Michelle's book and so hearing her story and setting that record straight and just getting some further awareness of what our men and women go through um, is that, is that there is somebody out there that you can speak to as well, who has gone through something similar that you guys can support each other through. But you mentioned something earlier, Michelle, that I want to touch on because we are running out of time. You mentioned again, another thing very similar to me when my husband became apparent that my husband was murdered and I had four kids, they were six, five, three, and one. You don't know what you're doing, right? As a mom, you're you're like, okay, now I have to deal with my husband dead, but I also have to tell my kids, how do I not screw this up any further? How do I help my kids? How how do children deal with trauma? How do children deal with grief? Like, I don't know this. Is there somebody military? Hello, can you get somebody in here to help me with my children to guide my children through this? Because I don't know how, like, can we get some mental health here? Um, And my response that I got was very similar to yours that no, there is no mental health 
services available for your families. Um, and then I went to my county because my children had lost their father to murder. Um, and the answer I got was, well, the crime didn't occur in this county. So your children are not eligible for county services from the crime victim specialists. Um, and so mental health is a, a raging issue in this country today for so many reasons, but for the men and women and the families that serve, I'm not going to try to speak for the whole country or even for everybody who serves, right? Just for my situation and for the people that I, the experiences I've had, um, how did you deal with that with mental health? And do you have thoughts moving forward on how we can help other families in this situation. And, and I'll go specifically for the military now. I'll go specifically for military, those who serve, we'll keep it a little niche, um, to improve the mental health services and support for families because, you, you know, you, you got to have the strong family unit to have a strong soldier, I think, as well. It's all intertwined. So do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean... That's, that's, it's such a challenge. I have so many thoughts on that. I know one huge thought I've had is over, you know, specifically towards gold star families. Um, and we, we and the have, gold star family. I'll stop because a lot of people don't know is somebody who has lost somebody, um, in their family on active duty service, but go ahead. Yeah. And so I'm going to pull this out, but when, when our spouses are killed, this is what we are given to fill out so that we can separate from the military. And you can't even imagine how much paperwork, how many things we are required to do. I did not get that. The <laughs> thing weighs way too much. And we have to go through all of that before we can separate from the military. So everything they require for us to do, right? And yet they will not do a single thing for our mental health. My husband just died. And I am going to meeting after meeting where nothing is sinking in. I am doing obviously a ridiculous amount of paperwork because now they're kicking me and my family out of the military, essentially, right? If you live on base, you have to leave within a year. You have to separate within a year. Oh and God. with all of that, they have no mental health care whatsoever. So when you're talking about an autistic 11-year-old who watches his dad die on t you know on the screen at school and they can't fit him in so i basically just had to i mean i was the mental health care professional for my kids and that that's what ends up happening is i have to read books i have to talk to them i have to keep them talking i bought them a therapy animal i mean i'm trying to do what i can do because they're not going to provide anything so how is that even possible so I'm actually starting an organization right now where we're, we're going to be um, basically advocating for changes, policy changes, and um, possibly even um, legislation. And what I'm hoping to do is get a piece put in there where when you are doing all of this paperwork, they're required to provide X amount of services to the Gold Star families when there is a death, plain and simple, X amount of cash allotted to each individual, whether it's the, the spouse and the children at minimum. Um, and as far as moving forward with, um, with families currently serving, we definitely have an issue right now because unless you are on the verge of committing suicide and can convince them in the ER that you're going to commit suicide that day, they will not see you. Yeah. So. Um, well, whatever I can do to support that work, I'm definitely in, um, you know, I know exactly how important that is. And I also know that, um, unfortunately, a lot of that mental health care, when it does arrive, arrives with prescriptions, <laughs> you know, it's like they give you your care in a bottle. And that mm -hmm. is the opposite of what is needed for the majority of people in here. So whatever we can do to help improve the mental health support, for all of the military and their families without the stigma and without the necessity of begging for it. I had to beg, I begged and begged and begged and it took um, like a week and a half at least 
uh, for a counselor to show up in my house. And they finally did send me a counselor, but only because I literally would not stop complaining about it. I was like, every day, I'm like, I need this. I need this. I was suicidal, um, like sobbing. I was a mess, right? And so finally yeah. they're like, let's get this. And they shipped this woman in who I, I think literally helped save my life in that moment when she arrived, like on my doorstep. Uh, and I'm still in touch with her today, just randomly. Um, and like, but why would I have to advocate for that so much? And she wasn't there for my children, right? She was yeah. there there. And the children are the ones who need it the most when you're, even when something terrible doesn't happen, even when their, their parent does survive and come home every so often for these periods of time that they're home, uh, it's still debilitating on a ch child to have that presence in their lives, out of their lives, in their lives, you know, and, and all that uncertainty going on. So I think, uh, mental health care for our men and women and the families in the armed services is key and, and so yeah. desperately needed in a greater capacity than is offered now. So whatever I can do to help, um, I'm in. And whatever our community can do to help, I'm sure they'll be down yeah. to do too. Uh, Michelle, I could talk to you for hours about this case and all this. And it's hard for it's hard to like stop you and pull you in this direction <laughs> and that direction. But there's so many areas to touch on and to cover. So uh, maybe we could just stay in touch and continue updating on your case. And I'm going to keep putting your book out there for people to see if you have something that comes up, um, some new movement or some like, Hey, afterthought, I'd like to add, uh, if you ever just want to hop on into our community and say hello to people, you know, directly, you're welcome to do that as well. Um, whatever we can do moving forward to roll you in um, with it and, and your work and your message and your story we're in. Okay. Okay. Thank you. And remind us again where to go to where your website is for people to find out more about you. Um, MichelleBlackSacrifice.com. Um, and also I'm all over um, Instagram, um, MichelleBlack71. So um, if you go on Instagram or author Michelle Black on Facebook, I'm, I'm there as well. All right. So. Excellent. Michelle, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Yeah, we'll definitely do it again. Okay, sounds good. Wow, what a great interview. I appreciate Michelle so much for so many reasons. Um, it is always good for me personally to connect with people who have been through something similar as it is with all of us, right? We all like to connect to people who have similar experiences. It kind of strengthens us, let us know we're not alone and we can learn from each other and support each other and empower each other along the way. So check out her book, um, find her online. She is out there on Instagram, Michelle Black. Uh, just Google that on Instagram, you'll pop it right up. Uh, she's an author out there, but she has an author page page to find out about her book, Sacrifice, um, and show her some love. Let her know that you saw her here on Flex Your Freedom and what you think of her story and let her know that you got her back too and you appreciate her husband's service and sacrifice. I'm going to close out uh, with thanking one more of our sponsors because again, we could not do anything that we do without the support of our community and our sponsors, in particular, our Great American Summit, which we held for the first time last January. And we are in the process of planning our second one now. So I'm going to give a big shout out and thank you right now to Minutemen Coffee. They are an unapologetically patriotic company. Not only is their coffee delicious, but that company gives back to support those who vow to protect and defend our freedom and liberty. You can find them, minutemencoffee.com. They have all different flavors, all different styles. So check them out. Um, find them online too. Let them know you appreciate their support of those who serve and protect and defend us here at home and abroad. Thank you so much for tuning in. It is a huge treat to be able to do this with you here every week. And don't forget, every day is a great day to flex your freedom. Mm -hmm.